Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. Well, as I just mentioned in the prayer, our text is in James chapter 4, so verses 7 through 10. We're continuing to walk through the book of James, and I hope it's been a blessing for you to receive God's word as it has been for me to, yes, receive it, but to also preach it. Because each week I have the opportunity to see wonderful things in God's word and to come before his people and expose those truths, to expose the meaning of the text. And so now we turn to James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. So let me read it for us. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Friends, this morning we have a passage that's written to those who call themselves followers of Christ, but apparently have their allegiances split in two. You can see it in the eighth verse that we just read, the eighth verse, that the readers of this letter that James is writing to are addressed in a particular fashion. So here's verse eight, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now it's true that from the very beginning of this letter, James James has never hesitated to call his readers his brothers, his family, to call them fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, in chapter 1 and in verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren. I mean, the readers themselves claim to be followers of Christ. They're a part of a church, and James, James is happy to call them that, but he's just as equally willing to call out their sin. He calls them out on their double-mindedness. He calls them double-minded adulteresses. And in our text today, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And so then, the question that you might ask is, what is the spiritual condition of those who are receiving these rebukes from James? And I would just simply propose to you that the answer to that question would be found in their obedience or lack thereof to today's text. I think the same could be said for us. You see, there was a group of people in that church with selfish ambition and pride. I wonder if we've ever struggled with self-ambition and pride, selfish ambition and pride. Well, today's passage teaches us humility before the cross. And a few of them wish to be teachers. They wish to be well-known in the church and in positions of power. But the problem is, is they ran their mouths. They ran their mouths uncontrollably. And not many of them should become teachers because of that. And this passage calls us to submit to the great teacher, Jesus Christ. There's a few of them that wanted to be exalted and they claimed to be wise. They claimed to be understanding. They showed favoritism towards the impressive rich that would walk into their congregation. Well, this text teaches us that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And this group of people in this church also seem to be quarreling. And causing division and dissension 
and heartache inside the church, destroying things around them, relationships, disturbing the purity and the holiness of the church. And our passage today teaches us to resist the devil. So if the transgressors that were rebuked in this letter were not truly saved, then I think their response to today's text would reveal it. And the call for them would still be the same. Humble yourself before God. Submit, therefore, to God. Humble yourself before the cross. But if the people that James had in mind were truly saved, once again, their obedience to this text would reveal it. Because they would receive today's passage with humility. And they would hear all of the rebukes of sin and the calls to repentance and to humbly respond with submission to God. And they would do so. And so as I look out at your faces, I understand that you may be in one of those two categories. Perhaps you're unsure of your salvation altogether. You might respect spiritual things. You might entertain thoughts about God. But a personal relationship with Jesus, that's something that is foreign to you. Something that you're not quite sure if that's, if that's really where you're at. And if you know Christ... The question would be, how is it that you can be made right with God? Well, verse 6 in James chapter 4 says that God gives a greater grace to the humble. And so I would call you, therefore, to submit to God. Or perhaps you do claim to be a Christian. You're a member of this church. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home your entire life. You could have had the soundest doctrine of them all. You come to church every Sunday. You even get up early enough to come to equip class. But you're miserable. And your life is full of doubts. Your life is full of fears and bitterness. You don't experience the type of peace and abundant life that is to be yours in Christ Jesus. The question is, could it be that you're living like a double-minded person? Well, dear brother and sister, God gives a greater grace to the humble. So once again, the call would be, therefore, submit to God. The passage that we have is a set of commands telling us to stop being double-minded people. Claiming to be friends with God while we find ways to befriend the world and all the things in it. And these commands are a way to call us To call us out on our sin and to call us to repentance and to bring us to our knees in humble submission to our gracious God. And so what I want to do in our time this morning is I want us to look at two major things. First, I want to draw your attention to the God of grace. And second, we're going to look at the commands He gives. So first, we're going to draw attention to the God of grace And then we will look at the commands that this God of grace gives. You know, it's a shame that there have been so many who surveyed the book of James and they've found it really to just be another rule book for the church. And it grieves my heart because that assessment of this letter couldn't be further from the truth. Because in many ways, James is a rebuke. It's a rebuke to a type of anti-gospel and self-sufficient pride. It's a written word of exhortation that is calling out our sin. 
And it's telling us how our sin is totally opposed to the character of God and His grace and His mercy. And the response to this sin in the book of James is not to try harder. It's not to go and do better and to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, but it's to remember who it is that our God is and to draw near to Him in faith and repentance. We were reminded time and time again throughout this book that God is a God of grace. So let me show you this. Let me show you how God is a God of grace in the chapters that we've already covered up to this point in time. And then we'll turn and look at it in our specific text for today. We get the very first taste of the God of grace in James chapter 1 verse 5. So here's what it says. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. What does God do? He gives to all generously and without reproach. So this is not just some simple command for us to go and do something like praying. Instead, we're compelled to pray by looking at the God of grace. And what I mean is that there's more than just the command to pray given here. The reason why we should pray is also given. That God is a God of grace who gives generously and without reproach. Which means He never responds to our rightful prayers with stinginess. As though He has no... As though He has nothing to give. As though we're asking for too much. And He's not able to give it. And He never answers our prayers with reproach. With a slap in the face for waiting too long to pray. Or for not providing for yourselves in the meantime. God doesn't give with reproach. And so we should pray. You see, God loves whenever we pray. Because He's a God of grace who loves to answer our prayers. And let me tell you, no heart that understands grace will fail to pray. It's only those who refuse to pray who live as though they can provide on their own. And so the call to pray in James is rooted in the doctrinal, theological reality of the God of grace. He is a God of grace who gives generously to His children. So pray. And in that same chapter, in chapter 1, we see it again in verse 17. The God of grace. Here's verse 17, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So every good thing that you have in your life is from God because God is a God of grace and He gives good things. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, where Paul teaches this very same concept. He says, for who considers you as superior?" Here's something very important. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, don't boast for what you have. The material things you have, the spiritual insight you have, your faith and repentance in God, don't boast in any of this. Why? Because everything you have has been given by God. We are recipients. The God of grace is the one who gives good gifts. 
And then the very next verse in James is James 1.18, and we see it again. We're taught that our salvation itself is all of God's grace. It says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So us being born again, our salvation is not of our doing. It is God's doing, the God of all grace. And so you see the God of all grace all throughout chapter one. And then we get to chapter two. And once again, there's a command. But are we given a command just like a rule book? Is that all, is that, all that James is wanting us to do? Follow the rules? Or is there something greater going on? So James chapter two, verse one is where we see the command. And it goes like this. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Don't show personal favoritism and claim faith in Christ. That's the command. Don't give preferential treatment to the rich while ignoring the poor. But why? Just because? Just because it's the rule? No. The reason why we shouldn't claim faith in Jesus Christ with an attitude of partiality is because God is not partial. He's a God of grace. In fact, in verse 5 of that same chapter, James says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So the reason why we do the command of verse 1 is because of the character of God in verse 5. He's a God of grace. And friends, we could just go on and on, but I hope that this is enough for you to get your eyes off of yourself and off of your works and to focus them rightly on our Almighty God. We can see it clearly in this short little survey of what we've been through so far in James that He is a God of grace. James doesn't shy away from this. This isn't a simple rule book. But now I want to show you the same thing from our passage today. And it's deeply important. In our passage today, we see that God is a God of grace. In chapter 4. So before we get to all the commands that are given in verses 7 through 10, there's something that is said about God in verse 6 that makes all the difference. There's a connection between the character of God in verse 6 and the commands that begin in verse 7. Now, how do we know that there's a connection? If you have your Bibles in front of you, look at them if you can. How do we know that there's a connection between verse 6 and verse 7? We know it because of one extremely important word. And this one word connects what follows with what was just spoken. It connects verse 6, what's... What, what was just spoken with verses 7 and 10, with what's about to follow. And you can find that very important word in verse 7. It's the word therefore. Submit, therefore, to God. Because of what was just said about God in verse 6, we should therefore do verse 7. That's the logic. 
which tells us that verse 6 is the grounds. It's the reason. It's the hope. It's the foundation for doing verses 7 through 10. We do the commands of today's passage because of the character of God and last week's passage. And if verse 6 goes away, the whole basis for our text today falls apart. So then what does verse 6 say? Because it's fairly important. It's important to everything else we're going to see today. Here it is. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here's the logic of what James just said. God gives a greater grace and He gives that grace to the humble. Verse 7, therefore submit to God. God gives grace to the humble, therefore be humble before God. Now that helps us make sense of all the types of commands that you're going to see in verses 7 through 10. Submit, draw near, be humble. And it might make you wonder, why doesn't God ask us to achieve some great task? Why don't verses 7 through 10 encourage us to figure out some complex problem? Surely, if we want things to get better, we ought to use our intellect to achieve a genius plan. Or we should use our hands and our feet to traverse a very treacherous journey. I mean, God is so great. He's so worthy. Look how easily we can twist this. God is so great. He's so worthy. He's so grand. Surely we ought to do something of magnitude to earn His favor and to gain His respect. So why does James give us just such simple commands in verses 7 through 10? I mean, submission? Humility? Why not something grandiose and something impressive? Well, my dear friends, that's because James wishes to help us and to truly help us. And he knows that we can never win over the most grand with our little grandiose acts. And he knows that we can never impress the most impressive one with our little deeds. The types of commands that are given in verses 7 through 10 is because of who God is as seen in verse 6. He's a God of grace He gives a greater grace. He gives that grace to the humble, to those who know they need it. Not to those who refuse it by their own works and deeds. Therefore, submit to God. You see, so much grandiose and impressive things won't do. In fact, He opposes the proud. In our attempts to shock and to amuse God with greatness... There's nothing but shouting curses in his face. He's a God of grace who gives grace to the humble. And God would have it no other way. And here's what that means, friends. It means that God cannot be bought, but you must be bought by him. His favor cannot be earned. And so you must receive it as he freely gives it. His forgiveness cannot be gained by your own merit and your own works. And so you must hope in the merit of Jesus Christ. You see, anything other than submission and humility is not a way to receive God. It's a way to oppose God. 
It's a way to oppose him by thinking we can impress him instead of being impressed by him. So as we turn to verses 7 through 10, we must know why James gives the types of commands he does. It's because God is a God of grace who gives grace to the humble. And something as simple as your double-mindedness can only be overcome by His hand. And He's the one who gives the greater grace to overcome it if you would humble yourself before Him. And what a wonderful thing to know that God would give you and me grace to overcome our sin, not by trying harder or by trusting in Him or setting up all of our boundaries. Not by trying harder. Not by working to overcome it. But God would give us grace to overcome our sin by trusting in Him. By falling before Him in humility. And I know that your temptation might be to say, well, that wouldn't work. I mean, surely there's something that I need to go and do. Right? I mean, some kind of act of extreme difficulty in order to overcome it. And I would just challenge you, brothers and sisters, to consider that those acts of repentance will come to those who receive grace. But the water of strength and power and will to do it is not drawn from the well of yourself. It's found in God who is the fountain of living waters. And you must confess that your well is dry and your tongue is parched or else you will never come to Him and drink. There's such wonder here. Such vastness to the love of God. But will you receive it? Or would you rather have such a small God that you could actually impress Him? Such an unholy God that you could actually right your wrongs. Such a short God that you could actually climb to His heights. Such a weak God that you could gain His favor by your strength. Dear friends, the truth is is that God is not small. He's not unholy. He's not short. He's not weak. God must be in the place of giver. Because that is who He is. And we must be the recipients. Because whether we recognize it or not, every breath that we breathe is from Him. Any other way flips the script and makes us the gods and He the benefactor of our greatness. And so as we turn to these commands that seem like anyone can do them, it's because of this. Anyone can could if they're willing you don't have to be rich or talented strong or tall or popular or noble or well known anyone can receive grace as a gift because that's what grace is it's a gift to be received through humble faith the question is will you receive it And because our hearts want to find the most difficult thing to do to please God, humility itself becomes the most difficult thing to do. 
Admitting that there's nothing we can do becomes the hardest thing to do of all. And so may God give this to us. And may we come humbly now before his word, asking for his help as he grants us humility and submission. We have reason to believe that he will because he's a God of grace and he gives a greater grace to those who are humble. And so then with all this in mind, we should now be more prepared to receive the commands that he gives. There's six of them. And so for the rest of our time together, let's consider what God's word would have us to do. And the first command is really at the head of all of them. If you do this one, you'll find yourself doing all the others. And so we're going to spend the majority of our time on this first command. And it's this. Submit to God. You'll find it in verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. You know, if you track the storyline of Scripture, you'll find what the true problem of humanity is. It's not that we have ailing bodies or that the world is set to decay. It's not simply our environment or the chemicals going on in our brain. The real problem is that we are rebels. We are rebels against the living God. We do not submit to Him as our God, as our Lord, as our King. I mean, surely rebellion is what happened when Adam and Eve listened to the snake instead of God. Choosing to trust in the devil and to act on their own lustful desires instead of submitting to the Creator. Wishing to become more like God or to become like gods themselves instead of joyfully living life as those created in God's image. And rebellion was also at play when people began to build a tower to the heavens. And to make a name for themselves. Instead of living to make a name for God, the Tower of Babel was a way to make a name for humanity. I mean, God commanded the people to fill the earth, to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth, and to live for Him as His image bearers. But they decided to stay in one location to become like gods themselves. And surely rebellion is what happened when the Israelites worshiped the golden calf, right after Yahweh delivered them from Egypt. And rebellion is what happened when Israel wanted an earthly king instead of God as their divine ruler. I mean, God himself looked at Samuel and said, they have rejected me as their king. And it was rebellion at play when the people scorned and persecuted the prophets, the very ones who preached God's word. They came bearing the very words of God and his words were time and time again refused. And was it not rebellion Was it not rebellion on greatest display when Jesus came to his own, but his own did not know him? It was rebellion when the rich young ruler refused to give up his riches in order to follow and know the Christ. It was rebellion when the people wanted Jesus for his food and for his medical miracles, but not his saving grace. And it was rebellion as they took the Son of God and they beat him to a pulp and they nailed him to a cross. In the same way, it's rebellion when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and reject it. Or when we hear the commands of our Lord, but go our own way. It's rebellion when Jesus' commands commands are clear in the Bible, but our obedience is delayed or altogether missing. 
So selfish ambition and not bridling the tongue and quarreling in the body and finding excuses to be half-hearted, refusing to give, not making disciples, not meditating on God's word, being prayerless, living after our lusts, being filled with envy and pride, neglecting to gather with the church and living with a harsh temper. This is all rebellion. Jesus says in Luke 6.46, Now why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you were truly your Lord, you would submit to Him. That's the point. This is one of the great reasons for why Jesus died. Paul tells us so in 1 Corinthians 5.15. He didn't die just to forgive us of our sins. In 1 Corinthians 5.15, it says Jesus died for all. So that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. So where we used to be rebels of God, Jesus died so that we'd be saved. And in being saved, we'd no longer be rebels, but followers. We would submit to him. Now Paul understood this well in his life and he said, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. In other words, the old sinful Paul is gone. The old man Paul and all of his ways are dead so that I may live for God and do what God has called me to do. We are called to submit to God. To stop going in our rebellious ways. To repent of our sin. And to follow Jesus with reckless abandon. And friends, submission is total. It's not just in this one area or at this one point in time. And while you may be unaware of what to believe or what to do. Those who have true saving faith. Will submit to God's word when it comes to them and instructs them in the right way. They won't fight and kick and claw and refusal. In opposition. And so submission to God includes several things. It includes this. It includes an acceptance of what God says about our condition. When the Bible calls us sinners, a submission to God would agree with this assessment. When His Word teaches us that we're desperately wicked and totally dead in our sins apart from being born again, then a true submission towards God would say, that's true, instead of, How dare you say that? True submission to God would hear about our total inability to do anything by our own power and to remedy our lost condition and to make ourselves right in the eyes of God. And we would say, God, your word is never wrong. That's true. Submission to God would not only accept what God says about our condition, but it would also acknowledge the just punishment that we deserve because of it. It's actually a sign of an unsubmissive heart when a sinner recognizes his sin but says he deserves to be with God in heaven anyways. What a shame to hear rebels against an eternally holy king telling that king that he has no right to punish for their rebellion or that his punishment is too severe or altogether unjust. No, friends, a submissive heart says, yes, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I deserve death. I deserve everlasting punishment by your wrath because I have committed an unquantifiable evil against your holy name. 
But a person who truly submits to God would also rejoice over the only mediator between God and man. And of course, this is Jesus Christ. Now, some want to be their own mediators. But they can't possibly make up this infinite chasm between them and God. Only God could do that. And so true submission rejoices over Jesus. And I pray that today you would rejoice over Jesus and that you would receive him today. That you wouldn't tell God how it is that he must go about saving you. But that you would humbly receive his way of salvation. That Jesus Christ, fully God, was able to be the perfect sacrifice needed to pay for our sin. And Jesus Christ, fully man, was able to be our rightful representative to stand in our place and to live the perfect life we never could. Friends, the one who submits to God rests all their hope in Jesus Christ. And the truly submissive follow Jesus at all costs. The Great Commission tells us to do more than make disciples by baptizing them. It tells us to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. But you see, there's two kinds of people in the world. And it shows whether or not they're truly followers of Christ or not. Those who hear Jesus' words and obey. And those who hear Jesus' words and do not obey. Those who submit to God and those who don't. The ones who don't are like a wobbly house that's built on the sand. And it's destroyed by the storm. But the ones who submit to God are like a house that's built on a solid foundation that can weather any wind, any bombardment from the waves. Someone who's truly received Jesus, receives Jesus. Not only one part of Him, or one thing He teaches, or one way that He asks to live. Submission to God is repentance from our sin and rebellion and turning to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. As Charles Spurgeon once said, Jesus saves us from our sin, not in our sin. When we're saved, we're born again and we're given new hearts and new desires and new loves. And the bondage of sin is broken and our hearts are freed now to live for God. And so the question is, do you follow Jesus at all costs? How do you respond to God's word being preached on Sunday mornings? Seriously, ask yourself the question. How do you respond to God's word on Sunday mornings? Whether you take it to heart or forget it, it's still a response. Do you grow forgetful? Does it go in one ear and out the other? Are we like the people in this book that are hearers of the word and not doers? I mean, does our mouth long to chew on our lunch after the service more than our heart longs to chew on the words of God throughout the week? Dear brothers and sisters, if we are to submit to God, we are to receive the word of God when it's preached and to meditate upon it and to pray about it afterwards and to talk it over with our families for lunch and dinner and to consider it and to remember it and to speak about it with one another throughout the week. Or perhaps there's an even more striking question to test whether we submit to God or not. How do you respond when you're confronted and corrected with God's word? Are you offended 
and angered? Do you have a desire in some sense to stone the messenger? Or do you humbly receive the truth? You know, there's no making disciples without teaching those disciples to obey all that Christ commanded. And you're in a disciple-making church, I hope. Which means that there will be times when you're taught a truth from the Bible that you didn't previously know. And times when your current beliefs are lovingly corrected. In times when your sin is going to be tenderly rebuked. In times when you're going to be exhorted and challenged to walk in faithfulness. And whether or not you respond in submission to God and His Word is the mark of whether or not you're truly a disciple of Christ. So friends, we see that we are to submit to God. And our time is coming to a close. And so the rest of the five commands are simply just brief extensions of this submission. They all fall under that general head. If you submit to God, you'll find yourself doing the rest of these commands. For instance, you'll find that submission to God includes the second command to resist the devil. Verse 7 is clear with a command and a promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now listen carefully. I know that there's some of you who have wanted deliverance from your sin... But perhaps have not spent a day fighting it. The command here is to resist the devil. And if you truly love Jesus and submit to him as your Lord, it will only be natural for you to resist his adversary. Put to death the deeds of the body. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Likewise, Spurgeon said, if you are to have peace with God, there must be war with Satan. So resist the devil. You're in here this morning and each of you, I'm sure, have some sin that you struggle with that very few people, if any, know about. If you love the Lord and are willingly submitting to him, resist the devil in this area. Fight him, not with flesh and blood, but in the spirit through contemplation on the gospel and communion with God and confession of sin to others. Resist the devil and the promise is that he will flee from you. Next, we're commanded to draw near to God. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I think that's a beautiful reminder of how to overcome our double-minded ways. Resist those ways, yes. Resist the devil, yes. But draw near to God. In fact, I might propose that drawing near to God is the prerequisite to resisting the devil. No one successfully resists sin by their own power. But those who draw near to God in prayer, they can know the victory that is to be had. I think that some of us spend so much time, I know I'm guilty of this, You ask yourself, am I guilty of this? I think some of us spend so much time focused on our sin and feeling guilty about it and setting up boundaries around it and complaining about how hard it is to overcome that we do just about everything else other than drawing near to the Lord. So why do you find no victory? Why are you miserable? Why don't you experience peace? Where's your assurance of faith? Well, take a look at your knees and see if they bear the marks of kneeling in prayer. 
Do your Bibles wear the stains of tears? Do your closets reveal where you've been with the Lord? What if you brought these things to the throne of grace? And what if you sought daily communion with Him? And what if you refused to leave before His presence in the morning until you've tasted of such a sweetness of who He is that everything else is distasteful and bitter? The promise is that He will draw near to you if you draw near to Him. Next in verse 8, we're commanded to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. But James isn't telling us to save ourselves or to make ourselves clean by our own goodness. Instead, he's calling us to be single-minded instead of double-minded as we have been. To not come to God in prayer while our intentions and our hearts are married to the world. He's telling us to be sincere. I think about King David, who we read about in Psalm 51 this morning, and how he asked God to cleanse him. Here's, what's, here's what we need to know about David. So when he asked that, he meant it. His intention was to love and to follow God with all of his heart. He didn't come to God for request of forgiveness on his lips, but intentions to still sin in his mind. He didn't come asking for help while setting out to do the things that he wanted help from. So consider your own hearts. Some of us might pray and ask God for help and seek his guidance without any bit of sincerity. Maybe it's fake. And if you know your heart and you know your intentions in your heart of not submitting to God in obedience, surely God Himself knows this even more. So cleanse your hands and purify your heart and come to Him with sincerity. And fifth, we're told, be miserable and mourn and weep. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, there's a type of frivolous and nonchalant attitude that is an affront to God. When our hearts are double-minded and we make friendship with the world and the things of it, that is not the time to be carefree. There's nothing funny about opposition to God. Nothing silly about being His enemy. Nothing to joke about when our hearts are carried away by the winds of the world. And how strange would it be to see a family laughing at their dinner table with joy inside their home while the whole structure is ablaze and on fire and the fire alarm is going off. How inappropriate is it to laugh and to cut up at a funeral or to crack, in, or to, or to crack a joke and take the day off? When the enemy is surrounding you in battle. It's even more disastrous to act as though all is well with God when it most certainly is not. And if there's peace between you and God through faith in His Son, then you know that the matters of sin are no laughing matter at all. And you know that we ought to be serious and devoted in detesting sin and growing in holiness. So insofar as we act as friends of the world, why should we laugh and play? Let's get serious about sin and real about following Christ with all of our might. James began in verse 6 by telling us that God gives grace to the humble. And he ends with the command to humble ourselves. 
You'll see it in verse 10. And with this, we'll close. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. So much of our temptation and our double-mindedness and sin is rooted in pride. A pride that seeks to elevate ourselves by putting other people down, by associating with the rich and the elites, by achieving positions of power and living with selfish ambition and greed and envy. These are all those pleasures, the sinful pleasures that lead us to these things and to become friends with the world. Verse 10 reminds us of another way to be exalted. Exalted by God. Humble yourself before God and He will exalt you. That is not achieved on the road of pride. It must be the road of humility. And so we have to ask ourselves, is it worth gaining the whole world and losing our soul? Is it worth being exalted by humans in this life, but rejected by God in the life to come? I think much of our double-mindedness would cease if we simply thought this way. May I be content with knowing Christ. May I be willing to lose all else for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And while a single soul may never know my name on this earth, my God in heaven has called me by name and he will raise me up on the last day. For me, this is all I need. How much of our double-mindedness would cease if we really thought and believed this way? Well, friends, may God grant us this kind of humility for the sake of His glory and the sake of His name.